Welcome back to the Agora for more discussion about the key issues making the news and dominating debates in Greece. I'm Nick Malkoutsis. And I'm Phoebe Fronista. On this episode, we'll be talking about the latest developments on the Greek political scene. In particular, we'll be examining the revival in the fortunes of the country's centre-left party. Known as the Pan-Hellenic Socialist Movement, or more casually, PASOK, It was founded in 1974, and it was led by the charismatic and controversial Andreas Papandreou, a three-time prime minister. And Pasok dominated Greek politics for much of the next four decades. No Greek politician since Andres Papandreou has been able to match his ability to get so many people out at rallies and the ballot box. And even after his death in 1994, the love some Greek voters still feel for him, as well as an abiding nostalgia for his time in power, remains impressive. However, when the Greek debt crisis erupted in 2009, Pasok with Andreas, his son, George Papandreou now leading it, found itself in power and having to manage the onset of the worst post-war economic crisis Greece had faced. It signed the first of three bailout agreements with the EU and the IMF in 2010, ushering in a period of austerity policies, economic depression and political turmoil. Unsurprisingly, during this Extremely tumultuous period, Pasok went from being a political powerhouse to a sideshow. In the 2009 elections, just before the crisis, the socialists gained almost 44% of the vote. But by January 2015, their share of the vote had plummeted to around 4.5%. This huge contraction in support gave birth to the term Pasokification, which has been used by political scientists in other countries to describe the sharp demise of established parties, particularly those of the center-left. Since the nadir of those elections in 2015, PASOK has been trying to recover traction with Greek voters and regain a foothold in Greek politics. This led to a merger with other center-left and centrist parties in 2018 to form the Movement for Change, or KINAL which gained just over 8% of the vote in the 2019 elections that brought the current centre-right government of Kyriakos Mitsotakis to power. Last December, following the death of Kinal leader Fofi Genimata, the party elected a member of the European Parliament, Nikos Androulakis, as its new president. The 43-year-old beat off the rest of the competition, which included former Prime Minister George Papandreou. His victory immediately triggered an upsurge in support for Kinal, whose opinion poll figures 
move towards the 20% mark, something that was unthinkable a few years earlier. Since then, the party's ratings have dipped slightly, but have not dropped below 12 to 14%. This revival in its fortunes has once again made it part of the political discussion in Greece, especially given that elections are due in the next 12 months. And to complete this comeback, on May 8th, party members voted to restore the party's old name, Basok, and its symbol, the rising sun, in the traditional green and white colors. The name, the symbol, and the party's adopted song, Calimera Ilie, or Good Morning Sun, composed by Manos Loizos, are potent artifacts of Greece's modern history. The PASOK of the 80s and 90s in particular was a party that stirred great passion in Greece. It drew devotion and contempt in almost equal measure, ensuring it could never be ignored. The Greek political scene of today is quite different to that period, but Pasok's recent comeback is compelling because of how finely balanced things are. One of the reasons we're taking a closer look at the party's revival is that it comes at a moment when support for the ruling centre-right party, New Democracy, has ebbed away. Also, left-wing Syriza, which led a governing coalition between 2015 and 2019, hasn't been able to make any substantial gains. Opinion polls suggest that new democracy, which has been battered by a series of crises since it took power, the cost of living being the latest one, might not be able to gain an outright majority when Greeks go to the polls. Of course, given these extraordinary times we live in, this could all change in the coming months. But as things stand, PASOK is in a potentially powerful position because either New Democracy or Syriza could need the support of the centre-left party to form the next government. So taking this turn of events into account, we wanted to find out more about what its new leadership thinks, what its aims and ideas are. To do this, I spoke to Irini Kostaki, a former journalist who now works as a political advisor on EU affairs to Nikos Androulakis. And she spoke to us from Brussels, where she's been based for the last few years. In the second part of the show, I'll be talking to political scientist Elias Dinas about PASOK, but also what kind of political moment we're in, and what kind of issues are likely to stir Greek voters. First, let's hear what Irini had to tell Phoebe. Irini met Nikos Androulakis during her time as a reporter covering the Greek and later the European parliaments. And she says there was something about him that inspired her. I saw a young and ambitious social democrat and a politician that had 
both the will and opportunities to, to evolve uh, through his uh, Europarliamentary term. And uh, I always thought that uh, he would uh, one day uh, be able to give uh, PASOK, our historic uh, political uh, body, the ability to grow and be an important uh, player, the, the great protagonist uh, for change in Greece uh, once again. Of course, George Papandreou, who was uh, the runner-up to the election together with uh, our president today, uh, he was a pioneer politician for his time, but he has uh, both been a prime minister and a minister holding important portfolios under his uh, uh, father's uh, government, uh, our historic leader Andreas Papandreou, and uh, uh, his successor, Kostas Simitis. Uh, but most importantly, he has already been a party president for more than eight years. So what can a politician offer to a party after an eight-year term? Uh, I wonder. And a person of my uh, generation, uh, in my 38 years, everything brings me closer uh, to Andrulakis, both in generational uh, terms, as I told you, but also uh, under the need for uh, renewal of uh, ideas, uh, uh, policies, everything. Irini ascribes this generational vibe shift as the main reason for Pasok's rising numbers in the wake of Andrulakis' election. But she also sees weaknesses in the opposition. I think uh, Nikos Andrulakis' uh, leadership made uh, signals a great uh, change uh, for the party, a generational uh, change, as I told you before. And I think that this is uh, important, uh, not only in personal terms uh, uh, of the president himself, but uh, it is a, it is a change that is uh, running through uh, all the all the aspects of. of uh, how PASOK reaches uh, the society. Uh, people see new faces uh, on TV. Uh, people see new faces uh, walking with uh, them on the streets uh, every weekend. Things are very different uh, from uh, 2011 and on. I think uh, a 10-year-old crisis uh, is uh, behind us. Of course, we had uh, a COVID crisis and today we have this uh, uh, war uh, in the center of uh, Europe, in the heart of Europe, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but yes, today things uh, politically they are different. Uh, we have uh, Syriza, the the hopeful uh, leftist uh, party of four uh, percent that now is already a veteran in uh, government uh, power with uh, five years already, and the uh, 48-year-old uh, Alexis Tsipras that has uh, uh, already been, he has already served 15 years as a party president and five uh, years as a prime minister, as we said. So I, I don't believe that Syriza has, uh, uh, th- th- they didn't show even uh, at their Congress uh, that they, uh, have any will to learn anything from their uh, triple 2019 electoral uh, defeat. 
it's strange to my eyes that they have uh, after uh, after after a five year uh, governance uh, of Alexis Tsipras and him being uh, already that many years uh, as a party president that there is uh, no uh, no other candidate in uh, Sunday's uh, elections for the party presidency. So having uh, Tsipras uh, on the one side of the dipole uh, and uh, New Democracy leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis on the other, it's not uh, the only uh, situation that uh, provides uh, Pasok uh, Kinemalagis with uh, some space. Uh, we have... Uh, right-wing populism dominating uh, the Greek media uh, via uh, top-notch ministers uh, of uh, the government uh, and uh, their leftist uh, alter ego from uh, Syriza. And and you have uh, the calm rhetoric of uh, Nikos Androulakis, a low-key and the practical approach to politics that Greeks need today. So it is PASOK that comes uh, with uh, concrete proposals uh, ahead of its uh, Congress at the end of May, 20 to 22nd of May. Uh, For example, we have uh, already tabled concrete measures to battle uh, the high energy prices uh, long before the Mitsotakis government uh, proposed anything on the matter. Uh, we have uh, concrete proposals in social housing, health, and uh, other key sectors that uh, PASOK and social democracy can offer real solutions. Of course, we're not magicians. Eh? Everything is best based on uh, more or less on best practices from other European member states. You, uh, we dis- we discuss with our uh, fellow parties. We. Um, we study their RRFs. Uh, we, we know, uh, for example, how uh, Portugal has uh, used uh, the RRF to, to tackle uh, the issue of uh, the very expensive uh, rents uh, that we share in uh, our uh, big cities uh, in Greece uh, today as well. And then you have the, the Greek government and... Uh, uh, Mr. Mitsotakis saying that they care about the issue. Yes, they care so much that they have uh, just uh, included 100 apartments, 100 houses throughout Greece in the whole RRF as a part of their social housing scheme. 70 in Athens, 30 in Thessaloniki, which is a joke, of course. From the moment Andrulakis was elected, speculation was rife about whether he would be willing to cut a deal with either New Democracy or Syriza, and especially with the specter of a hung parliament looming in the upcoming elections. But Irini says this new Pasok has ambitions beyond being just a potential kingmaker. It's it's not that we will not share ideas uh, with... uh... Uh, the other parties, uh, it is it is just that uh, we want uh, people to see us as a, a real alternative and not as a, a step to 
to another Tsipras and Mitsotakis government. We have seen both of them govern and we want to give our party a chance to change Greece, not via huge compromises and ministry exchanges with either Syriza or Nea Demokratia. Irini says it is the vote of the people that will decide the fate or makeup of any possible coalition government. And it's not up to the parties who are jockeying for position. And so she says they'll wait to see what voters have to say first. But Basok is betting that the voters they lost a decade ago might just be ready to come back in a sort of reverse Pasokification. The the rise of uh, Pasok uh, fits in a pattern that uh, became evident uh, during the, the pandemic crisis, the crisis of uh, COVID-19. Uh, that is uh, because the social net became uh, a part of uh, the discussion again. Uh, uh, we were t- talking again about... Uh, the quality of uh, health services uh, available, things that are mostly uh, in the agenda of uh, the European social democracy. So this current uh, period underlines the the period of the last two to three years. Now it's it's almost two and a half years that uh, we we are walking this uh, pandemic uh, slash uh, war crisis. This current period uh, underlines the need for a strong uh, state intervention in the economy. Uh, this uh, this became evident both in national and European level, and this makes the tools of uh, social de- democracy uh, relevant uh, once again and uh, brings uh, our uh, policy proposals uh, uh, on the table. So it's. It's it's us. It's the same party that some years ago became the case study as uh, the collapse of uh, social democracy in Europe. Uh, that is uh, is part of this strong reverse trend. Uh, we see that the people of Europe uh, now appreciate the value of solidarity, the welfare state, and. Uh, uh, the need for uh, resilience is uh, what brings back uh, sustainable development and the fair distribution of uh, wealth again uh, on the agenda both of the uh, Greek Socialist Party but in the governments of many European countries that have now uh, social democratic leaders and social democratic uh, parties uh, being uh, the the strongest member in coalition, such as Germany, Portugal and Spain. And uh, we also have a lot of young female socialist leaders, such as in Denmark, Finland and Sweden. So it's... It, it, it's not... Uh, it's not negligible. Uh, six... Six member states, six important member states have uh, the socialist uh, prime ministers and leaders uh, today. So uh, it's happening. Uh, the reverse uh, pasokification is happening. It's, uh, it's here. It's now. And we hope that uh, we will make it happen 
uh, in Greece also with uh, Pasok and Nikos Androulakis. This was very illuminating. Um, and I'm excited to maybe speak to you guys again, especially if elections are, are announced. Elections will be announced there. Uh, As long as our turn lasts, I think, we'll have... This is what I, I said to a colleague. We'll have, a, we'll have the rally and we'll be fully turned. <laughs> You're listening to the Agora Podcast, brought to you by Macropolis. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and we are hosted on Acast. We love hearing from you guys, so please, if you haven't, do write to us, rate us, and subscribe. It really helps others find us. And of course, for more information about our work and articles and commentary, visit our website, macropolis.gr. That's Macropolis with a C. Now, back to the show. That was Irini Kostaki, a political advisor to PASOK leader Nikos Androulakis, talking to Phoebe about what the centre-left party is hoping to achieve. With the party conference just around the corner, it seems that we're going to get a much better idea of what PASOK stands for under its new leader and its old name. Now, let's try to broaden the scope to see where this revitalized PASOK fits in within the broader political landscape here in Greece. I've been speaking to Elias Dinas. He's an associate professor in comparative politics at Oxford University, but he's currently the Swiss chair in federalism, democracy and international governance at the European University Institute in Florence, which is where he joined us from. Let's hear from Elias now. PASOK members have voted to reinstate the party's traditional name. How do you see it? Is, is it just the case of uh, nostalgia, which grips us all at uh, sometimes and is always part of uh, politics? Or is there a real political value, do you think, to this move? Uh, and I say that bearing in mind that PASOK, the Socialist Party, it's a, it's a name, it's an identity that was such a fixture of Greek politics for more than four decades. Yes, right. No, you're totally right. I mean, it is an interesting case of uh, nostalgia in a way. It reminds us of, I don't know, the DDR Museum uh, in Berlin. I don't know if there is. I think there was at some point a museum or some sort of ex- pass-off exhibition, not really a museum, but, but there was an uh, exhibition of the of the 80s. Yes. Yeah, of yeah, the 80s, yeah, yeah. which Pasok, I think, was particularly relevant. Yeah. Um, it, it does point to some sort of uh, nostalgia which always, uh, you know, um, uh, evokes positive sentiments and as a result can be electorally very fruitful. Uh, it does, however, also uh, speak to something more general about Greek politics, because beyond Pasok itself. The fact that the, the name has been voted back again and the fact that there was even a vote for this implies that, you know, we're back again into our so-called normalized political times, what in Greek 
parlance is known as canonical data in the sense that, you know, after the crisis, the crisis was a period precisely that stigmatized the brand, stigmatized the party with its morally party, the brand of the party, and whatever, you know, all the connotations that came with it. And now we are back into the post-crisis, which to some extent we want to believe is what we left before the crisis, mm-hmm. or, although I would doubt that this is the case, uh, a situation whereby uh, PASOK is again, uh, you know, can be back uh, into uh, normal politics, both as a name and as a brand and as a, and as a party. And that, I think, is, the, if, if anything, that is the main message that one can sort of take from uh, from this uh, from this move. Um, more than, you know, uh, a strategic, let's say, view on, on behalf of PASOK, uh, a, a more, like, you know, more, more inherent or general uh, approval on behalf of, of Greek society um, and the acceptance of, of the term and, and the brand itself. And of course, the timing is interesting. Naturally, it comes uh, a few months after uh, PASOK elected a new leader, Nikos Andrulakis, but it's also really as we move to the final stretch before the next general elections, which will be held somewhere in, during the next uh, 12 months. Um, and we've seen that since uh, electing a new leader, PASOK has enjoyed a bounce in the polls and it's put, propelled it to this role of potential kingmaker. Do you think there's a real prospect of PASOK being able to play this role? And I, I say this in, in two senses. Firstly, if as a party with with a new leader it, and in between uh, two parties, New Democracy and Syriza, that have a bigger share of the vote, it's able to... Uh, play this role, and I also say it in the context of you know at least recent Greek political history, which th- there hasn't really been a great tradition of coalition governments. In fact, it's been quite meager. Mm-hmm. No, you're totally right. So I I do think that there is um, there is room for Pasok to to play exactly that role, the role of fighting uh, maker. The problem is what happens next. To to some extent, we know from from the literature, I would say, but more generally, in less academic terms, from prior experience, we do know that the destiny of the so-called junior coalition members is quite gloomy, um, in the sense that, <clears throat> I, you know, the Lib Dems sort of notorious example uh, in the UK, comes yeah. to mind first, but, but, they're, but they're, yeah, in the UK, exactly. But but there are more than more than that, and it tends to be not just an anecdote, but more of a general trend that sort of new you know junior coalition members are, are more likely to be sort of influenced negatively by the so-called cost of governments, and that I think in in, in the case of, of of Greece or in the case of PASOK can be particularly a problem uh, if PASOK does that with with um, uh, having new democracy as the, the major coalition partner, it would be less predictable to know what will happen in the scenario in which Pasok and Syriza, for example, end up in, in a coalition, which I find obviously a far less uh, likely scenario. But but if, if that happens, the, the, you know, the chances of this going really uh, catastrophically for Pasok, I, I, I'm not sure they are much higher than in the case, or I, I would even say that might be even lower compared to the case with, with, in which this happens with new democracy. I, I do think that uh, the, the tradition, or it's, it's lack thereof, of, of, of coalitions in the country does pose generally uh, obstacles to this, but this is more of a concern for the major parties than for the minor parties in this respect. In other words, 
I do think that in in the, in the in a way of of creating, you know, during the formation of the government, of the coalition, of the agreement uh, that will need to be made, that, that would not be a problem for Kosovo itself. It would be a problem, if anything, for every two of the two main parties. And it seems to me that this election, even if accidentally uh, proportional or particularly proportional, let's say, or, or sufficiently proportional, uh, is uh, going to generate some more long-term effects in terms of making us, helping us learn to live more with coalitions, as the crisis to some extent has done already. Uh, it hasn't worked very well until now in terms of uh, what its aftermath, and I can be more specific about this. But it, I do I do see uh, some uh, room for learning uh, happening only through, of course, slave and terror. And I do see Pasok in this, in this situation. The problem, of course, and the challenge for the parties to deal and to sort of... Um, manage precisely this role in, in a way that wouldn't be catastrophic once again electorally um, in, in, in the future elections. As you mentioned, coalitions are something we saw really emerge in Greek politics during the, the, the recent uh, debt crisis and under the, the bailouts. But you, you believe they, they weren't a very sort of successful example of uh, governance? I don't know why, you know, there is no evidence that there is worse government uh, when it comes uh, when when it appears um, through coalitions. If anything, theoretically speaking, a coalition government is way more likely to properly cover and 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 sort of satisfy the needs of the so-called median voter, which practically means a coalition government, by definition, almost is more likely to uh, sort of satisfy the preferences of more voters than a non-coalition government, a single-party government, uh, which. I guess would you know should reflect uh, itself in, in positive outcomes in public provision uh, in terms of uh, you know in term, in, in once 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 this government is formed. Um, the fact that we have learned to live in sort of in, in dichotomies and we created dichotomies also during and, and after the crisis is obviously a scenario that doesn't help coalition governments and doesn't help very much this uh, sort of more pluralistic. A multi-party system that evolved quite spontaneously after after the after 2010. Um, so, uh, you know, on the one hand, I do think that the, there is there is room for not only learning but acceptance of such governments on the basis of the product of the sort of the of the work that can be done under this um, under this context. On the other hand, uh, the absence of sort of an understanding of how this works, as you say, and what one should, should expect. Like the, the standard problem that one finds with coalition governments is that the attribution of responsibility sort of problem. You don't know very well whom mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to sort of uh, blame for, for, for bad government and specific bad policies. Uh, and it is, you know, more costly, more difficult for voters to know who, you know, which, which, which ministries, which, uh, who has the responsibility, which of the parties, and all that. That can be a problem. It has been a problem to some extent in the crisis. The crisis had, you know, kind of masked this problem because we had much more important issues to resolve. Uh, it will come essentially into the game once we start operating under this condition. Uh, and it is a matter of, you know, political elites to find a way to sort of uh, yeah. harmonically operate uh, under this under this system uh, in order to, to provide um, um, uh, the fruits that are, are needed for the government to, to, to continue. And, and also perhaps a test of the 
political system, the the political elites, the decision makers, as you said, of uh, if obviously the election result uh, brings such a situation of forming a genuine coalition. And by that, I mean not one that is a political deal done in the back rooms before even the election is held, which is the experience that we had from the recent uh, coalition governments in Greece. Whereas you you look at somewhere like Germany and negotiations will take place over the several weeks about, uh, you know, the the, the policies, the portfolios that the the parties will get, whereas we're more used to it being sewn up before even the election is done. Exactly. You know, the the, the main problem that, that one would think that is more likely to emerge comes from, in a way, I would say from us, um, Voters rather than the parties. I was, you know, I happened to to to, to be reading uh, sort of some academic work on, on party politics uh, in Europe, and there is this very interesting uh, statistic. So there is this thing called affective polarization, which we have heard a lot uh, in the context of the of, of U.S. politics. The idea that Republicans and Democrats hate hate each other, that um, uh, dinners would last. Um, uh, would end earlier because you know you wouldn't talk about politics because talking about politics is toxic. There are two different worlds, all the, all that. And there was a measure to, to measure sort of how much you hate your outgroup, your political or partisan, if you want outgroup. And so that measure was transferred, was sort of uh, imported in Europe and was, has been used in Europe. And so we now have rankings of how effectively polarized each European country is vis-a-vis also the, uh, the United States of America. And guess what? Where are we? We're first. By far the most, you know, the country with the highest levels of effective polarization. In other words, we hate the, the other partisans um, on average more than any other country. That is the problem. And that is the problem because... Back in the times of the crisis, it was a bit of a problem also in the sense of democratic uh, backsliding or democratic stability. The, the, the standard Sartorian sort of argument was that if you have many parties and you have this kind of polarization, then you may end up have some sort of Weimar, some sort of breakdown. Of course, the democracy that we have established and the institutions that have been built into it are very, very, very robust. We, there's no such fear whatsoever, especially now that we're kind of um, going at least politically, but beyond uh, let's say, the, the turbulent period of the crisis. However, it is a problem when it comes to coalition uh, governments. Obviously, it requires uh, some decline in terms of the sort of outgroup or intergroup, let's say, uh, or interparty um, hated that has developed a lot uh, and has to some extent escalated during uh, during the crisis. That's that's the main problem. Okay, continuing with the theme of uh, voters. We now have three parties, PASOK, Syriza, and New Democracy, competing for the so-called center ground. Uh, there are many observers in Greece that think the voters who occupy this political space, and it's something that you read in the Greek media all the time about the, the, the middle class voters, the center ground voters, and these are the voters who have perhaps flitted between the three parties over the last 10 to 15 years, the belief is these. This is the group that decides uh, the result of elections in Greece. Uh, so my question is: Does the center ground really exist in Greece, and is it really so decisive? Yeah, it is. Is it so decisive? It, does it exist? It exists, but but I don't know in what in what dimension. Mm. Um, 
part of normalization, of, part of going back into uh, politics as as normal is, is the fact that we changed again. We went back to the dimensions, the, the dimension under which politics has been traditionally operating in Greece, which is the standard, let's say, left-right dimension that encompasses both political and identity uh, sort of concerns. Uh, that that dimension was clearly replaced by the European uh, unification or the European Union, you want to call it, uh, dimension that could explain easily why, you know, an otherwise radical left and radical right party uh, came together and formed the coalition. Um, we're back now into the standard left-right scheme and that implies probably that, you know, median voters can again be um, under that dimension very important. The problem is that they were, you know, during that process, as we went back to this, uh, they, they, the, the voters, um, for some reason, uh, were gone. In other words, uh, we do have, we are back into this dimension, but with way more polarization. In other words, there isn't so much of a center anymore. And the reason I think there isn't so much of a center anymore is not because sociologically you don't have the middle class or you don't have the standard interest of the middle class uh, being very important for people. And we see it now, for example, you know, now the reaction against um, the increase in mm-hmm. inflation is a very standard reaction that you would see in any, uh, in any European or any other uh, sort of um, established democracy decline against the incumbent. But the, the main problem is that the legacy of the crisis <clears throat> uh, was precisely to create We went back into the sort of left-right, but we went back into the left-right in a very specific way, in in the same way in which we started that scheme back in the day when, after the after the um, um, uh, after the uh, transitional democracy, Greece after the democratic transition created this left-right dimension as a right-anti-right scheme. In other words, there was this. Either you are right wing or you are anti-right. Why? Because the right was linked to the, you know, to ideologically, as sort of semantically, uh, to the previous authoritarian regime. Now we have the mirror image of this. Now the new cleavage is series anti-series, and that is exactly what emerged during the crisis, and that has stayed with us. It's not gone. And as a result of this, the center becomes almost, and not an empty set, but it becomes a very sort of difficult thing to, to sort of define and, and detect and to see how and what role you can play in politics, because people are still operating under process of negative partisanship or, or, or sort of agreement by negation. And that is particularly, that makes life particularly difficult for those who are not in the polls, for those who are in the center. And that is why I think we are still in that process, in a process in which Although we are back into the dimension, the dimension doesn't have the same shape as it used to have before. Would, would you say that that's the, the, the biggest political legacy from the 2010-2019 period, which spans the three uh, EU IMF bailouts that Greece went through? I think that's one of the most important ones, mm-hmm. I think, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, Syriza is paying still something very interesting. It's not paying so much. It's um, I mean, obviously... Let's put it differently. Different, different, different. Syriza is not paying so much what one would expect would be paying, which would be the most recent experience of Syriza and government, the 2015-2019. Mm-hmm. Not at all. If anything, they are paying the first period, the first term, mm-hmm. which was January, September 1. And even more, I would say, 
their role as, as opposition. Mm. The fear that was provoked, especially among specifically this, let's say, middle class, uh, during that 2010-2015 uh, period, uh, is, is still, I think, present in a very peculiar but very important way uh, in the minds of many voters. Let's not, I, I think, I, maybe I'm wrong, I, I, I haven't seen last, you know, latest polls sure. or, or anything, but my impression is that, you know, Speaking only in terms of ideological preferences, a coalition in the left would be more likely than a coalition in the right. But this is very difficult to happen precisely because of, of the start of the crisis on the main political, uh, on one of the main political players that emerged after the crisis, which is uh, Syriza. And that dichotomy, that polarization, is there w- with us. That is one of the main message, one of the main legacies indeed of the of the crisis. The other one, which was precisely the fact that, you know, that led to the, to the, to the, let's say, the golden zone and the increase of the radical right, well, has to some extent been, um, has decreased as a result of other developments that have, that have, that have taken place. Um, and that was also very important, but it has, it has evaporated to some extent. What has remained with us is precisely exactly this kind of stagnant, um, anti-series, let's say, um, not bias, but anti-series sentiment. Of, yeah, uh, sentiment. And that's exactly what. Okay, I'd like to look forward to the next elections, but do so by looking back at the last ones, which were in uh, June two thousand nineteen. Um, this is my interpretation, and please feel free to to disagree with it. Although you know, I I take your point about the the, the series of anti-series of sentiment, which was a clear cleavage over recent years in uh, Greek politics. But I got the impression that what tipped New Democracy over the line and its leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis into what was a, a, a big victory for them was that he was able to sketch out, let's say, uh, uh, an, some kind of idea for Greece beyond the bailouts, beyond this era of the, the debt crisis, where Caesar was very much focused on selling to the public the idea that it was the party, it was the government that took Greece out of the third and final bailout. But by by that time, I think voters were fed up with the discussion about bailout, austerity, uh, debt crisis, and they wanted some kind of idea of, okay, where, where does Greece go next? And perhaps New Democracy was able to uh, flesh this out a, b- a bit better than uh, Syriza was. Uh, and as I said, please, please feel free to give me your interpretation. But what do you think will be the key issue at stake you know, the, the, the crux of the matter in the next general elections in Greece, uh, regardless of whether they happen later this year or at the end of the four year, the government's four-year term uh, next summer? Right. No, you're, you're totally right, Nick. I think your, your interpretation of the previous election is very that, That's good to hear because uh, I've been boring uh, my I, friends I, and family I, with I, it. I, so I, I, <laughs> at least I've been telling them something useful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, as I think it's it's in Anna Karen, I think the first page uh, of Anna Karen, there, there is, I think, every every family, every every happy family, all happy families are the same. Every every unhappy family is uh, unhappy in its own uh, mm. in its own different way. So I think that 
uh, or maybe it's all rich families versus poor families. I, I don't remember well. But, but it's something similar happened in the 2015. I think that is the main reason that the democracy won, and that is the reason which, you know, uh, opposition ends up in, in power. The reason why incumbents lose, you, you know, one can find various uh, different reasons. You know, one can think of different areas of the country in which uh, series are lost differentially also because of decisions that were taken, one of them being the PRESP agreement, but, but the bulk, I think, of the, you know, the main reason um, and the reason they would have lost anyway is precisely the fact that they did not manage, I think, through their profile uh, to portray themselves as the, as the competent, let's say, uh, managers that take us to the, to the, to the next uh, stage, which is exactly what Chiriakou Jotak is particularly, personally, more than his party uh, achieved. And that has been ongoing, uh, and I don't think in this respect uh, many things have changed. So I think that would be the, the sort of the main motto, the main message to which the, 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 the current uh, party will go into the election. And I think that it has some sort of it has a evidence to back up the argument in the, in, in, depending on how people you know uh, see their management, but they did have many crises to manage and, and that, or at least more than, than typically happens uh, in governments. although Greece has been was used already in the government Greek to, um, to different uh, crises or different sort of manifestations of the same financial crisis that we had for almost a decade but you know, that last election, that last uh, parliamentary term has been also one in which, um, you know, we had the pandemic, now we have the war. Um, it's, it's been obviously a very uh, busy period in terms of political events. I do believe a lot in events when it comes to elections. Uh, Mati was an event that, because I do believe... Uh, the, 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 the fire in Mati, yeah. Yeah, because I do believe a lot in tipping points. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, and the tipping points cannot do not need to go exactly the same way as electoral terms or parliamentary terms go. They do tend to correlate a lot when it comes to campaigns. But what I mean by that is that it may take two electoral terms for the tipping point to arrive. So I don't see tipping point arriving against new democracy as, as the government right now. I do see a possibility for sort of coalition dyma- dynamics emerging in another one, like Alas Spain, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. which brought back the Socialist Party there into into life uh, after the election. But for the election, I don't really see much of it of a change unless there is some event that would, would change things a lot. But the general argument, the argument of, you know, what is the day after and trying to portray yourself as a competent, um, uh, not only manager, but a competent a politician with some vision that is compatible with uh, with uh, the, the, the the main uh, expectations of of the of the to put it uh, simply um, middle class or or the average voter in Greece. I think the new democracy still has a clear advantage in this respect. Where does uh, where would Syriza go in, in 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 the election in terms of of, of how to to um, to sort of um, uh, compete, I I would think that uh, it you know the, given that this managerial or let's say competence uh, mismatch uh, perceived, eh, I'm not making any normative argument here whatsoever, uh, but the perceived uh, uh, competence uh, sort of mismatch could be uh, addressed on ideological lines, on lines that have especially now that we see with inflation and with specific uh, sort of decisions that have been that are taken, and I think. You know, 
that is to some extent the, the bet for for the for the main opposition party as well as its relationship with uh, PASOK uh, insofar as PASOK manages to stay. But the main thing is that you know we are very much dependent on tipping points. Mm-hmm. Tipping points are not easily determined by us. Mati was a tipping point. Mati changed everything. As exactly the November 2011 was a tipping point that switched series from 7% to 14 or 44 yeah. to 7 and then directly to, to 17. This didn't happen gradually from 2009 to 2012. It happened very much towards the after Cannes. Mm-hmm. And it happened very much after Mati. So there are these events that are triggering in a way, another wise already emerging trend, but which is much smoother and much milder than what happens after those those events. Okay, Elias, as we heard in the background a little earlier, the, the bells of Florence are telling us that our time is up. It's been a fascinating discussion and uh, many, many more issues uh, that we, we could have touched on. And, um, well, let's see, we, we may have uh, 12 months ahead of us to uh, talk more. Great. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And apologies for the back. No, no, no. It was it added to the romance, <laughs> the romance of it all. <laughs> Thank you. Remind that we are also here. <laughs> that was Elias Dinas a political scientist currently teaching at the European University Institute, talking to Nick. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. I hope we've managed to provide some insight into what's happening at Basok, a kind of sleeping giant of Greek politics, and how this fits into the bigger picture of developments here. With elections due by next summer, I think we've given our listeners a useful appetizer before the main course. Always food for thought, Phoebe. Food for thought. (laughs) And that's where we'll leave you for this episode of the Agora. Remember, you can listen to us on a range of platforms. Acast, Spotify, Google, and Apple. Please do subscribe and rate us. It really means a lot to us. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.